Okay, we are going. Edie, that means you would do the, the green part. Oh, I thought <laughs> I, we're super professional. I thought you were doing that. Okay, but you're doing the part that we talk uh, that talks about Mike, right? Yes, you. I'm green. Okay, you are green. green I am purple today. <laughs> I'm doing wonderfully, starting out strong. Okay. Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of the Guidehouse Insights Plugged In Podcast. If you're not familiar, we go deep into emerging topics from distributed energy to sustainable hydrogen to smart lighting systems. Shout out to Wendy's episode. Really good one. So as we're getting into it, I'm Edie Wilson. I've been on all the episodes thus far. I'm a research analyst on the Insights Transport team. My recent research has been around transportation decarbonization from sustainable aviation fuels or SAF to micromobility solutions to using EVs as a grid resource. This will actually be my last episode with the Guidehouse Insights Plugged In podcast uh, and moving on, but you're in good hands. Jake is going to continue hosting the podcast and It'll continue coming out monthly with lots of really fun topics. I am Jake. I am a research analyst who is in mourning at the loss of my uh, podcast co-host. And I don't know if I'll be able to handle it. I don't know if I'm going to fill your shoes, Edie. It'll all of a sudden become super popular with the best ratings as soon as I leave. That's what's going to (laughs) happen. But yeah, I'm a research analyst on the transports, uh, Insights Transportation team. Uh, my research research has been about the automation of everything from farms to shipping ports. This week, we are speaking with Mike Austin, a senior research analyst on the Guidehouse Insights team about his report, EV Batteries, which I actually did some research and made a very fun chart for. Mike is on the Guidehouse Insights Transportation team with myself and Edie, and leads a lot of our research projects on EVs, EV chargers, EV batteries, anything with a tire and a charger. Mike knows about. Prior to working with Guidehouse Insights, Mike has been a digital content creator for Hemmings Motor News and Hagerty Insurance. Before that, he was the editor-in-chief of Autoblog, a senior automotive editor for Popular Mechanics, a technical editor for Car and Driver Magazine, and despite having been so many editors, he's still not a terrifying person to be around. Mike has a BS in mechanical engineering and an MS in industrial engineering from the University of Michigan, where he was on the water skiing club. Uh, Welcome to the pod, Mike. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Okay, to kick it off, Mike, it seems like batteries are everywhere, but it feels like, at least to me, no one really understands how they work. Can you give us a quick non-engineer's guide to the main components of a battery? Um, yeah, the the answer is they're magic. Uh, no, but um, yeah, there's... Oh, okay. <laughs> the really simple version is you have an anode, which is the negative uh, pole, and a cathode, which is the positive pole, and you have an electrolyte in between. And so the anode and the cathode are, are made of two different materials. You can feed power into the battery to charge it up and it moves the ions and the electrodes. So that's like a, a positively charged uh, molecule. It moves them into one side of the battery. So you have all this stored energy. And then when you connect a circuit on the outside of the battery, electrons flow through the wire. So negative charge flows through the wire and then the positive ions flow through the battery from one side to the other. So you're sort of, you know, moving electrons around to move those ions inside the battery. And that makes the moving electrons make electricity. 
And hopefully that's good enough. I'm sure there's somebody that can give a better explanation. Please uh, send us an email if you would like me to fix my short description. We only have, you know, le- less than an hour. Um, I feel like anyone with an electrical engineering degree could talk about it for four years, but we cannot. Mike, where did EV batteries and I guess EVs in the whole originate from? Like, when did we go from putting batteries in the alarm clocks to putting batteries in our cars? Right, well, I mean, if you watch the History Channel, there's probably, um, you know, there's probably some show that suggests that ancient Egyptians had battery power or or some um, old old civilization, but the modern battery dates back to eight, the year 1800 with Alessandro Volta. He made the first modern battery stack. It it worked okay, but it didn't really take off until you know probably the 20th century in the 1900s. You know, and uh, from there, you know, we had a lot of technological developments in World War II. I'm giving a really terrible history here, but you know, post war we had a lot of consumer expansion and all kinds of consumer electronics, and we had yeah, like you said, batteries in our radios and our alarm clocks and uh, around this time, they were looking at you know different sorts of things. Car batteries probably didn't really get rolling. There were a few electric vehicles during the first '70s energy crisis, but those were using basically you know lead acid batteries that you'd have in like a fishing trolling motor or or the same ones that start your car. Not very efficient, but that that did kick off you know some research and some development in it. And then fast forward to late '80s, early '90s, uh, the California Air uh, resource board CARB was going to have an EV mandate. That's when GM made the EV1. There were a couple other EVs as well. Ford made an electric Ranger. Nissan had one. So that was like the first kind of real modern battery EV. Uh, I'd say the next big jump would probably be the Prius, which was the first mass market hybrid. You know, from there, I think that probably moved the idea of larger batteries into cars at mass production along the way. And then that led to Tesla and where we are today. Okay. Wow, this is a long history. There are multiple different battery chemistries, and I'm curious if all EVs are using the same type of chemistry or if there are different chemistries used by different companies for EVs, if there seems to be any active innovation around battery chemistry for EVs specifically. Yeah, yeah, that's a big question, but I'll try to answer it as best (laughs) I can. And Please bear in mind, I'm not a chemical engineer either. Yeah, there are multiple different battery chemistries. Again, jumping back to hybrids, um, you know, some early ones and the older EVs, you know, some of them were lead acid, some were nickel, uh, cadmium. And then you started getting into better chemistries like nickel metal hydride. And then, but the big breakthrough is lithium ion. And again, going back to the Tesla Roadster, the idea was, what if we take a bunch of laptop cells and put them into a giant battery and... At the time, that was novel. Uh, now it's, you know, we have billions and billions of dollars of factories making this stuff. So right now, the main two chemistries are nickel-based. That usually means nickel-cobalt-manganese or nickel-cobalt-manganese-aluminum. There's some older variations on that that are, are less popular. And then the other one that's a little more up and coming is lithium iron phosphate or LFP cells. And it depends on the application in the company. Some companies like BYD in China, they're almost all LFP cells. They're working on that. Where And um, a lot of stuff in the US, in North America and Europe is still nickel-based. The reason for that is historically nickel-based chemistries have more energy density. So you can pack more energy into a cell 
usually at less weight. LFP is a little cheaper and they've been doing some some tricks in terms of packing more batteries into the overall box that evens that out a little bit. But those are the two main cells. And and your question about are there differences in the chemistries and what does it do? It it is, yeah, it's it's a complicated piece of different chemistries yield different attributes, whether it's power or energy density or gravimetric density, and then you have price and cycle life. So everyone's trying to balance all of these things to make a battery that will last as long as possible in an automobile at an affordable price, but still giving people enough range that they want. And it's tricky. Um, And then on, on top of that, there's other chemistries that are just coming to production now or have been talked about. One thing I wanted to ask about is if you've read any EV news, uh, sooner or later you'll hear that someone has finally figured out solid state batteries and that those kind of headlines have been around for years now. Could you give a little insight into what a solid state battery is and what it means and why it's an advantage? Uh, Yeah. So before that, Batteries that aren't solid state batteries have an, a liquid electrolyte, sometimes more of a paste, but that's the goop that sits between the anode and cathode with a separator that the ions move through. Solid state batteries don't have liquid electrolyte. It's just, it's all solid, you know, ceramic or some some sort of permeable substance in between the anode and cathode that lets those ions move through. The reason why everybody likes it and thinks that it's the next big thing is you get really fast charge times and you get really good power density. So all of a sudden that five minute charge becomes a reality with solid state batteries, but they've also been the battery of the future for the last 10 years. You know, they've always been 10 years away for the last 15 years. I mean, it might change in the next 10 years. There's a number of, of large companies that have made that said, we're going to have this. I think Toyota has said 2025, Samsung has said late 24, 25. So they're, they're getting close, but, and this is something that was in our battery report is one thing with any advancements in battery technology, you might see them in consumer electronics first, like your phone or your laptop, but automotive requires such huge volume and other pieces of scaling up that even if you had a solid state battery right today, you said, we're ready with it. We're going to go. It's probably not going to get into a car in five years because you have to build a factory that can make five and probably more likely more than 20 gigawatt hours worth of batteries every year so that you can supply 10 to 100 to 200,000 vehicles. That's a huge investment. It takes time to do that. And then once you have the plant built, you have to scale up and make sure that you can build those batteries at quality at scale because some of that stuff changes. You're, you're using different machines. Maybe you're running faster. You have to be careful with your quality control, which is a long way of saying solid state batteries are probably coming when exactly isn't totally certain. And then also once they're ready, it's still going to be a little while before they get into your car, which is another really interesting piece discussed in the report is because of this massive investment and because the industry is really focused on just scaling up and just getting enough volume to supply all the EVs that everyone thinks we're going to make, it puts a little heavier burden on those next generation technologies because nobody wants to make a two or $4 billion bet on something that's unproven. So they need to be proven out. They need to be built at you know, a reasonably small scale, and then you get to gigafactory scale. And meanwhile, all the existing technologies are also improving. So the main result is everyone's, oh, solid state batteries, they're going to change everything. You're going to get 600 miles of range. Well, that may be true, but by the time you get to solid state batteries, you might already be at 450 or 500 miles of range. So it's it's going to be a steady increase. It's less likely there will be big jumps in battery technology over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of a, a moving target there in terms of battery improvement. Our next question is basically, it seems like governments especially, but also automakers are big proponents of this move away from gasoline-powered cars 
I was wondering if you could speak to some of the bans around gasoline-powered cars and how that's influencing the EV market. Um, yeah, so China has a really ambitious goal for EV adoption. A number of countries in Europe have it, and then California, and I think we're at 14 other states, have adopted a rule. And so presuming we have a mostly North American audience, uh, the California rule goes into effect in 2035 uh, and ramps up before that. And and this is similar to every other place that has either an internal combustion ban or a zero emission mandate. It's a lot of it's centered around 2035, 2040. In order to do that, you need to be able to make, you know, you look at how many cars do we make today? Are we going to be able to make all of those in EV? And again, automotive has pretty long lead time. So you basically need to be working on it now if you're going to be doing that. And so subsequently, a number of automakers, Volkswagen and General Motors probably being the biggest, have also said we're going to go electric only after 2030 or 2035 or, or several years along the way. And some of that is in response to the regulations. They're just assuming the regulations will continue to get harder. Some of it is ESG, both both from a government standpoint and a, and a corporate standpoint. We want to meet carbon emission goals. And some of it's even just there's a limited pile of development money. And transitioning to batteries takes a lot of upfront investment and continuing to build both internal combustion and EV could be a drag on your R&D resources because you, again, the emission, you're assuming your emissions are going to get tougher and tougher. So you're still going to have to develop your internal combustion engines to get cleaner and cleaner if they're even allowed. I, I think there's you know some logic to the idea of if we switch over, then we've just eliminated all of the cost of developing that internal combustion technology. Are there any other big drivers you kind of mentioned? Not, I want to say to the EV market, but I guess to the EV battery market, which I think is almost, in, in so many ways, it is the EV market. You know, a lot of it is focused on light duty, just because that's where it's where most of the cars are made. It's where most of the production is geared towards, you know, therefore it's most of the factories and most of the battery production is light duty vehicles. But, you know, portion of light duty, and especially when you get into medium heavy duty, you get into fleet vehicles. Those are, that's fascinating, I think, because in some ways those are being driven harder. On the one hand, you know, fleet people are concerned with total cost of ownership. In a lot of cases, EV can offer a better total cost of ownership because your fueling cost is so low. I didn't mention this earlier, but one thing with LFP batteries is they tend to have a really good cycle life. So you can put an LFP battery into a medium or heavy duty truck and expect it to go many hundreds of thousands of miles without having to replace the battery. And then again, the regulation on goods transportation and also again, the corporate piece on ESG for goods transportation. I think there's more pressure there than just on people's personal vehicles. So it's not a driver necessarily in the EV market, but it's a driver in, in the transportation market. I, th I think there's also some, there's a little bit of sentiment, maybe a bandwagon effect when you look at countries like the Nordics that have really high levels of EV sales now is that once it becomes the norm, then it becomes, you know, people want that. And before it becomes the norm, there's people that say, hey, I want to drive something that doesn't have tailpipe emissions, or I can put solar on my roof, or I can find other ways to buy clean energy and, and do a personal thing. That varies a lot more, but I think it's still, that's a portion of why people buy EVs. Okay, so I want to turn to the flip side. Are there any big barriers that you're seeing to the EV battery market and by extension, the, the EV market as a whole? Yeah, the, the biggest thing with the battery market or the biggest risk is the supply chain and raw materials. And this is something where I, I think it comes up a lot in when you read the news or in, in popular conversations, someone says, where are we going to get all these minerals? What's the environmental impact of these minerals? A lot of that's being solved. You know, eventually we'll have a circular recycling market. Right now we don't have one because there's just not a lot of end-of-life EVs to get batteries back into that ecosystem. But when everyone looks out long-term, 
you know, you're looking at mostly only digging stuff up once, you know, or the bulk of it. But um, before we get there, and even after we get there, the supply chain is a big piece that, again, the the size and the amount of batteries you need for automotive is way, way bigger than consumer electronics. So we're doing this rapid expansion. And along the way, we're building the supply chain. It's not like we have this excess of lithium or we have this excess of nickel. What are we going to do with it? Let's make some batteries. It's we're making batteries or we're making EVs. The sales are increasing huge amounts every year and we're extrapolating that out. And also we have regulations and OEM promises to increase that production. We got to figure out how to get more of these materials all along the way. So there's just the basic piece of how do we get enough materials in the right places? And then there's the added challenge of right now, a lot of that production is is focused on China or some of the raw materials and refinement are focused in different geographic areas. That creates a couple problems. You know, you can be concerned about any supply disruptions, like if there's another pandemic, you have geopolitical issues, but the biggest piece is batteries are heavy and you're moving a lot of these things around. And the overall goal is carbon reduction or one of the overall goals. And so shipping that stuff around increases the carbon of your supply chain. The other, so on top of we're trying to get all of these pieces of the supply chain together. There's also a push to say, we want to put the supply chain closer to production. All of that's taking time and isn't in place now. So we could see some risk there where there's just some supply shortages that either delays the expansion of battery EVs or raises raw material prices or causes some other disruptions. Those are kind of hard to predict. Long-term, I think it will still stay on track. Like you're talking six to 12 months shifts, if you ask me to guess. That's the challenge. It's, it's a big one, but... There's a lot of effort going into fixing it. Can I ask you to real quick quantify something that you, you mentioned that we kind of like danced around, which is we need to ramp up how many batteries we're producing. So we're already you know globally making a ton of batteries for phones, laptops, everything. What's the expansion of scope that it requires to now make you know EV batteries? Okay, so there's two ways to look at this. You have like if you total up the capacity of all of the factories that are planned and being announced, and then you have, if you take how many bat- how many vehicles we think we're going to sell, and then how much battery do you think we'll need for that? And those are a little different. I'll get into that. But first, I'll just say just based on vehicle sales, you know, so you take, we have this many number of vehicles, this many different regions, you know, they average this much kilowatt hours per pack. Today, we're at around 586,000 megawatt hours of total battery going into those cars. If you jump out to 2032 in our battery report, you get to 4.7, actually 4.8 million megawatt hours. So you're talking more than seven time increase to supply the batteries. And and that's for two reasons. The sales are going up, but then we're also assuming that the battery pack size is going to go up. First of all, that's just a trend we've seen so far. We think it's going to continue because people will still be concerned with range. As the price of the battery packs come down, the automakers will likely add capacity to the battery packs so they can offer more range. They might say, okay, we'll just cut the price with the same battery pack. But again, we're going on the assumption that people want range and like range. Battery packs will keep getting bigger. I mentioned factories. If you calculate all the factory capacity, it's going to be higher than that 4.8 million megawatt hour number. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, if you're involved in this, in, in the supply chain and you're building batteries, you want to have some excess capacity, right? If all of a sudden, if you can affordably have excess capacity, you want to be able to serve the market versus missing out on the market. But the other piece is a lot of these battery plants are announced. And you know, if you're looking at, you say, okay, there's, for example, somewhere around 2030, 2032, there's 1 million megawatt hours, one terawatt hour of battery production just in North America. If you look at the dates of those, someone announces a 20 gigawatt hour factory for 2026, that's when the factory is scheduled to open. 
So they're not making 20 gigawatt hours in 2026. And that's if they open on time. And we've, you know, one of the things we've seen with the supply chain and this ramping up is this is another challenge as well, is that the battery plants are taking longer than expected to build. And then they're taking longer than expected to get that high volume manufacturing up. Going back to the difference between, you know, what is the total of all the batteries in the cars we expect to produce? And what is the total capacity? That total capacity is a bigger number, but also it's a much fuzzier number because you can only really go on when they announce to open the plant. Battery manufacturing plants don't necessarily say we're going to open in 2026 and we're definitely going to be at full capacity in 2028. So make your projections based on that. Yeah. And you've referenced the supply chain a few times now. So I have a couple of questions that I'm going to try to wrap up all into one giant question. It seems like there's a lot of policy around battery supply chain trying to nearshore battery supply chain with stuff like the Inflation Reduction Act or IRA, incentives around producing EVs, including the battery components in North America or in countries that we have free trade agreements with. Is that effective, I guess is the right word? Do we see that changing the landscape of battery supply chain? And can you just speak to how possible it is to change the structure of battery supply chain and why that might be happening. Yeah, I'm fairly optimistic on this, just in terms of like, it's possible and it's going to happen. But specific to the IRA and and the general trend of localizing production, not just with batteries, but kind of with everything. It's coming out of the pandemic, everybody realized like, hey, wait a minute, if we have, you know, all of our supply chain in in one basket, one geographic basket, so to speak, that can get disrupted. Take any other concerns, cost, geopolitics, take that out of there. Again, if there's any problem in that one area, you're exposed to risk and you're exposed to more uncertainty in the future with, with other factors in that. You know, if you have a longer supply chain, there's more reason for disruption, whether it's transit or or any other factor. In general, manufacturing has said, you know, let's get things localized. I think there's also when you look at things like transport costs and overall carbon emissions, you get a lot of gains. If you have something local, you're not moving it as far, you know, you're shortening that supply chain and and long term. You can either be cost competitive or, or cost advantage, depending on what all of those pieces of your cost are. So there's that piece too. The trick is getting it set up. And that's where the IRA comes in to say, we're going to incentivize this to make it affordable now so we can better compete with established volume manufacturers that have already come down that, that cost curve. And I think if you look... And again, this isn't just North America. Europe has several incentives as well. And, and you're seeing it in countries that don't have as many EVs but are starting to ramp up. They're they're pushing for that as well. If you look specific to the US, it's definitely working. You know, right when the IRA came out, there was a flurry of of announcements, many of which were probably already in place. But if you look at the announcements since then, there's been a lot. That that tracker I mentioned where we're at almost a terawatt of production, when we wrote the report, it was closer to 700,000. So just in the few months since the report's come out, we've seen more and more battery production announced for North America. And that also goes down to other pieces of the supply chain, like refining. Tesla is probably the biggest example. They're, they're going to have a lithium processing plant. There's a couple other refining pieces as well. So yeah, it's working. Mike, the last question we always like to ask before we send you off are, in your research, in, in your expertise, have you found any sort of wacky, wild, or unbelievable things that have to deal with EV batteries or things that are just on your mind with it that don't really come up in these kind of interviews? You know, I've been, I've been thinking about this one a lot, and I was trying to come up with a wacky story because I love trivia, but I, I couldn't really think of one. But I will share one thing that, that I'm constantly sort of amazed at is just the sheer size of an EV battery. So that the average American household uses something like 30 kilowatt hours a day 
and and that's pretty big. I track the energy at my house and 20 kilowatt hours is a pretty big day. If if we're not home, it's like eight. So, you know, you have a 60 kilowatt hour car battery. That's two to four days of all of the power you use in your whole house, including your dishwasher, your dryer, your air conditioner. It's a lot of power. And you're not, you know, you're not using that whole battery every day. So it's not like you might not be doubling the, the power consumption of your house, but it's just, it's incredible to me how much energy that is. And especially when you think of other things like your cell phone battery, or if you compare it to, to gasoline, you know, it's the equivalent of somewhere between two and four gallons of gas in this great big battery. It, it speaks to, you know, why we've been relying on fossil fuels. There's a lot of energy in fossil fuels, but also I think it's just kind of cool. It's like you have this giant battery in there four or five times the size of a Tesla Powerwall, and it comes free with the purchase of the car. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining us on this episode. If you want to learn more about EV batteries, the report is available on the Guidehouse Insights webpage. To keep up to date with the podcast, please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast now. We look forward to you joining me and not ED for the next conversation in November. And thank you to Guidehouse for providing us this platform discussion. To keep up to date on the larger Guidehouse Insights work, follow our Industry Insights blog on the website, guidehouseinsights.com. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you.